passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, over the last uh, month or so, we as a church have been working our way through Genesis, and uh, we're going to continue doing that this morning. But I want to start by just talking a little bit about faithfulness. You see, faithfulness is an admirable quality. All of us would recognize that. It's something that we seek to emulate in our lives. It is something that probably all of us would readily, wholeheartedly agree that God is perfectly and utterly faithful. We admire it when we see faithfulness in others, and we kind of look negatively upon those who are unfaithful. And it's, it's difficult for us to be faithful. It is difficult to be faithful even when faithfulness is shown to us, but what about when we are being shown unfaithfulness? How much harder is it to be faithful? And in a way, that's a question over and over that the first few chapters of the book of Genesis are wrestling through. See, over and over in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we see God pour out good gifts on humanity. And yet in response to those good gifts, humanity responds with rejection by spurning God's attempts and and opportunities for communion and fellowship, by ignoring him, by rebelling him, and more. And yet in the response, or in response to these actions from humanity, from his creation, God responds with grace. And God responds with mercy every single time. Let's just trace this briefly through the first few chapters of Genesis. We start in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and we see the creation of everything. And God creates everything good. We see that the primary purpose of his creation is to honor him, to praise him. And as a part of God's goodness and the goodness of this creation, God entrusts this creation to humanity. In response to this incredible gift, humanity decides to turn its back on God. They decide to side with creation rather than with the creator, and they choose to oppose God. And in the face of this treason, God is faithful. God responds to the rebellion of his creation with judgment, yes, but also, as we saw a couple weeks ago in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, he responds with mercy. Hear these words. From verse 21 of chapter 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God took Adam and Eve and he took his shamed and stained creation and he slaughters an animal. And through this slaughtered animal, he covers their nakedness and he covers their guilt. We pick up in Genesis chapter 4, and we might think that humanity has learned their lesson. After all, they just lost paradise by not following God. And that's what it seems like as we start. Starts with the beginning of life, and Adam and Eve's two sons begin worshiping God. But we see very quickly that Cain has not learned from the mistakes of his parents. In fact, the only thing Cain has learned is how to be more effective at hiding his sin than his parents were. And so Cain kills his brother from jealousy. 
And we might expect God to respond in judgment, which he does respond in judgment. He does curse Cain, but he also responds in mercy. Take a look at verse 15 of chapter 4. It says this, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. There's a lot of uh, interpretations and discussion about what this mark means. And some people look at it as a mark of shame, but that doesn't fit the context. We don't know exactly what it is, but it is clear it is a mark, a sign of protection. God responds with faithfulness to the unfaithfulness of his creation. We continue in Genesis 4, and things continue to get worse. Over and over, we see that Cain's descendants are worse than their father was. Cain was bad. Descendants are worse. We see the increase of murder, the increase of polygamy, the increase of injustice, all thanks to those who bear the image of God. And we see this and begin to wonder if the promise that God gave to the woman in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, this promise that one day her offspring will overcome the offspring of the serpent, we begin to wonder if this promise will be lost. If this promise will go unfulfilled. And praise God for Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, where it says this. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. As wickedness increases on the face of the earth, we catch a glimmer of hope here at the end of Genesis chapter 4. That God has not forgotten about his creation. That God plans on continuing to work through his creation with the birth of Seth. Is there still judgment? Yes. If you look at Genesis chapter 5, the common phrase, the, the key word in there over and over and over again is death. But also, at the same time that there is death, there is a glimmer of hope because the people of Seth's line begin to call on the name of the Lord. We see Enoch, a descendant of Seth, walks with God. God has not given up on his image bearers. Things seem to be looking up, but then we get to Genesis chapter 6, and the first four verses are some of the most controversial in the Bible. But I think what's being described here is relatively simple. We see the intermarrying of the line of Seth, or the sons of God, with the line of Cain, or the daughters of Man, this is why wickedness begins to spread on the face of the earth. This is why Noah is the only one who was found righteous at the time of the flood. Because the line of Seth has been poisoned by the wickedness of the line of Cain. We get a little glimpse here in Genesis chapter 6 of God's thinking as he looks at his creation. It's so sobering. It's this in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Just think of that. God created everything good, everything perfect. To the point where after he was done with creation, he took a step back and took a day to rest because of how satisfied he was with his creation. And then we pick up in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and we see that wickedness is on the face of the earth. The evil is the primary intention of the heart of humanity, and God regrets making humanity. If it weren't for humanity, if it weren't for you, and if it weren't for me, if it weren't for Adam and Eve and every single person who ever lived, God's creation would still be perfect. There would be no pain, there would be no suffering. There would be no death. No wonder God regrets and grieves over creating humanity. But then we catch a glimpse of hope here in verse 8 where it says this, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Sin is everywhere and yet God sees Noah. And we get a glimpse of hope. The flood is a sign of judgment clearly. But it's also a sign of grace that God is delivering his creation from the wickedness of humanity. That he has chosen a remnant to rebuild his fallen creation through. Last week, if you were with us, that's what Pastor Stephen focused on. He focused on the flood as an intersection of God's justice and an intersection of God's mercy. What we see as we look at Genesis is that's really what Genesis is about. It's God's justice and his mercy. That's what the entire Bible is about. And no place is it found more clearly than in Jesus. It is at the cross that God's justice and God's mercy intersect most fully. God is just, and yet God is also merciful. This morning, as we continue our way through Genesis, we're going to be looking at this intersection of justice and mercy, looking at the faithfulness of God. And doing that, we're going to be looking at what is basically an epilogue to the story of Noah. So after the flood, but there's this little story about Noah and his sons that's, that's kind of interesting. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. And as we work our way through that, we're going to see God's faithfulness. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 8 as we begin to see how God responds to the remnant that he has saved through this flood. Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We pick up here right after the flood. Many of us are familiar with the flood, that God looks at the wickedness of humanity and decides to send a flood to cleanse the earth. And yet he sees Noah 
And he decides to save Noah and save a remnant of humanity through the ark. And I want you to just put yourself in Noah's shoes for a second. Imagine that you are Noah. You've been on an ark for hundreds of days. Your life has been preserved, though you're not exactly living in uh, first-class quarters. You are surrounded on a stinky, dark ark surrounded by a number of animals. The rain has stopped months ago, and yet it's still not safe for you to go off the ark. Then one day you send out a dove hoping for a good sign, and the dove does not return. It's a sign for great rejoicing. God speaks, and you are able to leave the ark. But as you leave the ark, the land that you walk onto is far different from what you had once known. No more are the lush green landscapes of Genesis chapters 2 and 3. You encounter a world of gray. It is damp. It is muddy, and it is lifeless. Over the past month, if you've been following the news, you're probably familiar with the amount of flooding that has taken place in South Carolina, in Charleston, South Carolina. And to look at some of the pictures of the destruction, of the aftermath of this flooding, you see destruction, and you see lifelessness. Over the past few weeks, maybe you've seen pictures of the mudslides in California, Again, pictures of destruction, gray and lifeless. And that's the world that Noah steps out into. In fact, it's a little more like Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, where God describes the earth as formless and void than it is more than Genesis chapters 2 and 3. But as he walks out of the ark, he sees Little green shoots shooting out of the ground, a sign of hope. God is faithful to his creation. And so Noah responds in the only way that he knows how. He responds with worship. He builds an altar for a burnt offering to God. And burnt offerings in the Old Testament are the most popular forms of sacrifices. They were used as signs of thanksgiving. And they were used as signs of self-dedication or consecration to God. And I just want to say, what an appropriate sacrifice. After God has saved Noah and his family through the ark, after he's preserved their lives, Noah responds in thanksgiving. He responds by offering up burnt offerings to God. But I think more than that, or just as much as that, these sacrifices are signs of dedication. These sacrifices are signs of consecration, saying that they now belong to God. For centuries, humanity has been rebelling against God. They have been going on their own way for centuries, and now here at the start of what is basically a second creation, a second chance for humanity, Noah and his family take the time to say, we are God's. We belong to him. We will do things his way. Everything that we do, we desire to honor God with our lives. And so they offer up burnt offerings. What an appropriate response. What an appropriate response to salvation. You see, in Genesis chapter 8, we we realize that the flood was never meant to fix sin. Verse 21 makes that very clear. Sin still exists after the flood. 
It was never meant to fix the problem of sin. And so in the face of that continued threat, Noah and his family say, we belong to God. We are God's. I think that's an important thing for us to just focus on for a few moments. Worship is the proper response to salvation, is it not? Worship is the proper response to salvation. In 1 Peter, we see Peter connect the flood with our own baptisms. He says that just as Noah and his family were saved from the flood by grace, so also God has saved us from a terrible fate awaiting us through his grace. So let us respond in a way that is similar to Noah. Let us be reminded that we are to respond with worship for our salvation. That we are to respond with thanksgiving for our salvation. But even more so, let us respond with self-dedication. Let us respond with consecration. Offering up our lives to God as a way of showing him thanksgiving and gratitude. You see, salvation is costly. It cost Jesus the cross. And it is costly for us as well. It costs us our pride. It costs us our self-righteousness. It costs us our right to decide what is best for us. If we've truly gone through the floodwaters, let us be like Noah and respond with worship. Worship is the proper response to salvation. Let's pick up in chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. For from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood will be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply on it. If you notice, there are a lot of parallels here between Genesis chapter 9 and Genesis chapters 1 and 2. I mentioned earlier that Noah and this story serves almost as a second creation. It's a second chance for God's creation. You notice in the creation story that God charges Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and the same charge is given to Noah and his children here. In Genesis chapter 1, God gives Adam and Eve directions on food. He says, every green plant in the garden is for you to eat. And here he gives, gives Noah and his children directions for food. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that God creates Adam and Eve in his image. And here, again, we see that every person on the face of the planet is created in the image of God. In a way, Noah is a second Adam. Now, not in the same way that Christ is, but through Noah, God is hitting the reset button on his creation. Adam was the father of all humanity, and now we see that Noah, through the flood, is the father of all humanity. You might notice as as we read through this that there's a, a great deal here at the end talking about blood. 
We see that it is forbidden of Noah and his children to eat blood because it is symbolic of life. I think this is important for us to look at and to to recognize really for two reasons. First of all, it's a reminder to us that God is the giver of life. It's a reminder to us that God is the source of life, that everything that lives has its life through him. And by pouring out blood before eating, it was a reminder to Noah and his family. That's the first thing. But second, notice Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, one more time. It says this, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. Because God is the source of life, we will be held accountable for the gift of life. We will be held accountable for what we do with our lives. And 9 verse 5 here is really, uh, it's a partial institution of substitutionary sacrifice. See, God is going to require a reckoning for every single person who ever lives. And if we don't live up to his standards, then blood will be required to pay for that. Life will be required to pay for that either our own or someone else's. And these words here remind us that we will be held accountable for what we do with our lives. We will be held accountable for what we do with our lives. Judgment awaits creation. Judgment awaits creation. We will all stand before God and we will all be asked about what we have done with our lives. And if we have fallen short of God's righteous decree, then lifeblood will be required as a payment for our shortcomings. Either yours, again, or someone else's. And so ask yourself, how am I living my life? What am I doing with my life? Are the thoughts that consume me worth dwelling on? Or the things that I focus on, will they last? Am I investing my time and my talents and my finances into something that is worthwhile? If not, what should I change? We will be held accountable for our lives. Let's pick up in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and how and and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember that every, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. After Noah is charged with repopulating the earth, God now enters into a covenant with Noah and all of creation. And I think it's important for us to just take a moment and and define this word covenant. 
to explain what it means. There are really two understandings of covenants. First of all, most basically, a covenant is a promise. It is a promise. Here in Genesis chapter 9, God promises to never again destroy the earth through a flood. It is a covenant. It is a promise. Because God is the one who's making this promise, we can be assured that he will keep it, that it is unbreakable. After all, God is the one who never lies or ever changes his mind. So that's the first understanding of covenant. Second understanding of covenant, uh, we have to look a little bit at uh, ancient history. A lot of times in ancient history, uh, covenants were contractual agreements between two different nations. In other words, they were treaties. They were alliances between two different nations. And essentially, these were treaties that would bind the two nations together. There were nations that were of equal strength that would enter into covenants together, and these were mutually agreed upon. It would be, you know, we'll do this for you if you do this for us, and and it was pretty straightforward. So that's one view of a covenant as a contractual agreement. But the other times, they were agreements between a very powerful nation and a very weak nation. And in these sorts of covenants, the very weak nation was required to do a lot for the greater nation. And the greater nation didn't have to do all that much for the weaker one. I want you to think. Is the relationship between God, like the first example, between two equals? Or is it between a greater party and a lesser party? It's between a greater party and a lesser party. So the expectation would be that all of the expectations, all of the things that have to be done would be placed on creation, would be placed on the people to make sure that they live in such a way that God will continue to honor this agreement. So it is radically good news. It is earth-shattering and shocking that this covenant is unconditional. That there are no expectations placed on creation. God simply binds himself to his word and says, you know what, I'm going to do this. I commit to do this for you. For all of creation that never again will I destroy the earth through a flood. See, God recognizes that there is still evil in humanity. He knows that sin and rebellion still exist. He knows that he would be fully justified to destroy everything once more through a flood. But in his grace, God makes an unconditional covenant. He promises to people unconditionally. We see this in how this sign is described. This sign, this rainbow, is not to remind us primarily, but is to remind God. When we see the bow in the sky, yes, we can be reminded that God will keep his promises, but we are reminded of that because God sees the rainbow. God sees the bow and reminds himself that he will never again destroy the earth through a flood. In a way, God's unconditional covenant here points to a greater unconditional covenant. God's unconditional covenant here points to a greater unconditional covenant. Notice the word that's used here for the sign. It is the word bow. Throughout the Old Testament, this word is used to describe a battle bow. It is used to refer to a bow that would be used by the military. And God has placed a sign in the sky. And this is a bow that is pointing at God. 
saying, if you do not keep your promises, this bow will be loosed on you. God binds himself to his word, assuring us that he will keep his promise. Thousands of years after Noah, God entered into a second unconditional covenant with creation. I was at the cross. It was an unconditional covenant that far surpasses this first one. Because we see that the wrath of God is actually loosed upon God's Son. The unconditional covenant of Genesis chapter 9 points to the unconditional covenant of the cross. What incredibly good news for us. And as we close the last section here of of chapter 9, let's just read these words. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, excuse me, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. You see, in spite of Noah being a righteous man, as we see in Genesis chapter 6, he's clearly not without his faults. In Genesis chapter 8, he's making a covenant with God, or he's dedicating himself to God, and here he is so drunk that he's passed out on the floor lying naked. What a despicable sign for the one who's to be God's second Adam. A despicable sign of the one through whom God will repopulate the earth. What a despicable sign for someone who just dedicated themselves to God. But surprisingly, the text doesn't spend any time focusing on Noah and his situation. It instead focuses on the sin of his son, Ham. There's a lot of theories about what happens here, but I think the best is just the simplest. Ham did not honor his father. In ancient times, this was one of the most important things for a person, for a son to do, was to honor his father and his mother. When Ham walks in and sees his father lying passed out naked, instead of clothing him and taking care of him, he instead mocks him to his brothers. And Shem and Japheth show us what honoring your father looks like here. Of course, the interesting part is what happens next. Noah finds out about what Ham has done, and instead of cursing Ham, he curses Ham's son, Canaan. And we look at this and we say, well, how is that just? A couple things. First, 
uh, if you notice, if you're following along uh, and paying attention to uh, the flood narrative, these are actually the first words that Noah speaks. That doesn't mean that Noah was mute for the first several hundred years of his life. It simply is that nothing has been recorded up to this point. In the same way, it is very likely that Noah said more than just this curse toward Canaan. Second, remember the original audience of Genesis. Genesis was written by Moses in the wilderness to the people of Israel right before they entered the land of Canaan. The people of Israel are intimately aware with the wickedness of the people of Canaan. They know that they are pagans, that they do not honor God, that they are despicable, and that they are to be destroyed. It is entirely likely that God, or that Noah, in this curse, said more than just this part about Canaan, but because it was so relevant to the people of Israel, it was the only part that Moses recorded. And third thing, I think a lot of times when we read this passage, we interpret it as saying, as Noah saying, may Canaan be cursed because of what Ham did. That's how we interpret it. But it's just as uh, faithful to the interpretation to say, Canaan will be cursed. In other words, that this is not based off of the actions of Ham, but it is simply the actions of Ham that provide Noah with a chance for prophecy. It's not based off of the actions of his father. This is a, a judgment that is pronounced upon Canaan for the future actions of his people. It's a prophecy, not an actual curse here. So God, through Noah, says, Cursed be Canaan. And the people of Israel, hundreds of years later, can see, yes, they are cursed. They don't follow God. But notice what else Noah says here. He pronounces a blessing as well, but this blessing isn't on Shem. It's a blessing that's on God. Noah has just woken up from a drunken stupor right after he pledges his life to God. And he is intimately aware of God's grace. He's intimately aware that God is a gracious God. And so he says, blessed be the God of Shem. Bless this God for his grace. And these words here remind us that God's grace for his creation is unconditional. God's grace for his, uncondition, uh, for his creation is unconditional in spite of the wickedness of Ham. And in spite of the wickedness of Noah, God shows grace. And by definition, grace is unconditional. And the same grace is offered to each and every one of us. You see, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, this epilogue here focusing on the story of Noah, they proclaim that God is faithful to his promises in spite of our unfaithfulness. God is faithful to his promises in spite of our unfaithfulness. You look again at the testimony of Genesis. Over and over, God gives good gifts to his creation. And over and over, they respond with rebellion and evil. And yet every time, God continues his faithfulness. God is faithful to his promises. Even in the midst of, in spite of our unfaithfulness. And this is good news for us. 
This is good news because it reminds us that God's grace and his favor are not contingent upon how good we are at dedicating ourselves to God. I'm sure every single one of us here has found ourselves like Noah in Genesis chapter 8, dedicating ourselves to God, pledging ourselves to God. And then in just in Genesis chapter 9, just a few verses later, either literally or figuratively, lying on the tent floor naked, drunk. And when we wake up, whether it's after a few moments or whether it's after a few months, we begin to beat ourselves up. We begin to say, how can God possibly forgive me? Look at what I've done. I'm not worthy of following God. And the reality is, friends, we are not worthy of following God. But ju- and just like Noah, we deserve judgment. But the key to our justification is found in Genesis 9, verse 5. I'm going to read it one more time. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from every man. Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heather sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin god is faithful to his promises and that faithfulness is most clearly seen on the cross in jesus if you feel unworthy of god's faithfulness if you feel unworthy of god's grace they still remain god is faithful to his promises in spite of our unfaithfulness but on the other side if if you read this passage, if you hear this good news about God's faithfulness to us in spite of our unfaithfulness, and you say, you know what, that's okay. God's going to forgive me anyway. I can keep living the way I want. And oftentimes, I know that I waft between these two sides where on one hand, I feel unworthy of God. On the other hand, I say, you know what, God's just going to forgive me anyway. If you find yourself in those situations, ask, are you taking advantage of the grace of God? Are you taking advantage of God himself? It is easy to fall into this trap. Let us respond like Noah. Dedicating ourselves to God. Offering up our lives to him. Because God is faithful to his promises in spite of our unfaithfulness. Let us respond in thanksgiving and praise. Because our lives have been reconciled, justified, and redeemed through the blood of Christ. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for what he has done for us on the cross. We thank you that even as you declare here in Genesis chapter 9, that you will demand a reckoning of us for what we have done with our lives, that we can stand justified without condemnation before you because of your son. God, if we have the tendency to find ourselves unworthy of that grace, help us to trust in you and not ourselves. And God, if we have a tendency to misuse that grace, I pray that you would forgive us. Help us to understand the true nature of your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.